0: Well, if there's any semblance of honor on the state Supreme Court left, you cannot have a person who runs for the court prejudging a case and being open about it and then acting on the case as if you're an impartial observer. Well, if there's anyone who knows anything about honor, it's Wisconsin Assembly Speaker Robin Boss. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Why? I got the feeling that some- I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair, and I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am stuck in the middle with you. I am. From the Pacifica Radio Network, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP in Rochester, New York on WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX. In Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, going to talk about Wisconsin today. In Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM950, KTNF, amongst other fine terrestrial affiliates from coast to coast. Also around the globe on the internet, on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling edition. Of a Midsummer Night's broadcast. Glad to have you here with us. Uh, Way, way, way back in 2011, you may recall a huge uproar at the time when then first term Wisconsin Governor Republican Scott Walker was working with a new Republican majority in the state assembly to enact a bill that would strip union rights from public employees in the Badger State. There was huge protests against the measure. Remember that, Desi Doyen? Oh,
1: my, yes. It they were was, cacophonous inside the chamber.
0: Oh, It was a huge thing. It was a huge national thing that uh, a legislature in a state that really, uh, you know, in, literally invented the modern labor movement in the U.S., would be trying to take away union rights from millions of people, so it was there were huge, huge protests. Walker had never actually run on that issue, but somehow he claimed that he had a mandate to take the power of collective bargaining away from all of these people. Now the move was wildly unpopular, but the newly empowered GOP in the state legislature and the newly sworn in governor they did not care they just barreled over any and all opposition to the uh to to, to this move that to taking away these long and hard-fought rights for government employees. And they continue to govern in a way that suggested they just simply did not care what the voters thought about anything. In fact, it was then that they changed their legislative maps to entrench the GOP majorities in both the uh, Assembly and the Senate for the next decade. A legacy of which still continues and is now being challenged at the State Supreme Court under a new liberal majority on the High Court in Wisconsin, that uh, legacy of gerrymandering continues, and it is still a fight, but that fight may be finally uh, well coming to a a, a conclusion. Now, back then, during the long fight over all of this, and it was a huge one at the time, huge fight at the time, with the Republican leadership just barreling over Democratic opposition, many of the Democratic lawmakers at the time, remember, they actually fled the state to avoid oh, a, yes. a quorum that uh, might allow the union stripping bill to pass, in the, I believe in the Senate at the time. Uh, back then, I discussed and wrote about on a number of occasions that Wisconsin's Republican legislative majority had become sort of a laboratory for a new type of Republican governance back then. A hardball, you know, uh, just plowing over anything in, in its way, sort of uh, authoritarian yeah, governance. And while the state's. Uh, All the states have always been a so-called laboratory for democracy. The new Republican way of governing was turning Wisconsin into a laboratory for autocracy that I feared way back then was likely an experiment that would spread to other states. Boy, was I right about that. First, you know, it spread to states like North Carolina, where, like in Wisconsin, a gerrymandered state legislature ran roughshod over popular policies and engineered ways to keep Democrats from exercising virtually any power. Even stripping uh, the state governor's offices, uh, both in North Carolina and Wisconsin, from their powers once Democrats were then elected to those offices in statewide elections. That sort of no-holds-barred authoritarianism by extreme GOP-partisan gerrymandered state legislatures has now become pretty much par for the course in GOP-controlled states all over the country. But now... (laughs) Now, at least in Wisconsin, there is a major pushback right now that a liberal majority on the Supreme Court has been elected by the voters for the uh, for the state's high court. And in turn, Republicans in that autocratic way that they now operate are pushing back hard On the people's choice to have a liberal majority on the state Supreme Court. I'll be joined momentarily by Brad Blog, legal uh, contributor, Ernie Canning, who's been writing about the latest knockdown battle for survival by state Republicans in Wisconsin in what could be a huge story in the coming weeks in the great Badger State. So hang on for that one. In the meantime, what's going on in the great state of Georgia? (laughs) the red Yeah, there's a whole bunch of surrendering going on in Georgia, in Fulton County, Georgia specifically. The first of Donald Trump's 18 co-defendants in Georgia's criminal case, accusing the disgraced former president and his associates of attempting to steal The 2020 election in the Peach State uh, surrendered at a Fulton County jail in Atlanta on Tuesday, according to county records. Trump's former lawyer, John Eastman, one of the main architects behind the ridiculously criminal scheme to try and have Vice President Mike Pence essentially toss out legitimate electoral college votes on January 6th to try and help steal the election for Trump, and uh, and a guy who Reuters describes as a Republican poll watcher uh, who is also named in the indictment. They don't say much more about him. I'll get to him in a second. Both of them surrendered to the county sheriff's office two days before Trump himself is uh, supposedly set to turn himself in to face his fourth criminal indictment this year. And please note there is a lot of time left in the year, so we'll see if, <laughs> there are, if there are more than four, ultimately. Eastman said in a statement that he would surrender the day after he had agreed to a $100,000 bond agreement. He said, quote, I'm here to surrender to an indictment that should never have been brought. It represents a crossing of the Rubicon for our country, he said implicating the fundamental First Amendment right to petition the government for redress of grievances.
1: <laughs> oh, is that what he's
0: calling it? That's what it was. That's what happened on January 6th. They were just petitioning the government for a redress of grievances.
1: That's all.
0: And, of course, as uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith noted in his federal indictment of Donald Trump related to his uh, attempt to steal the election at the federal level, he and John Eastman, Uh, who is uh, uh, cited—Eastman is is cited as an unindicted co-conspirator in the federal case, at least for now. Uh, He and Eastman, uh, as Jack Smith noted, have every right to use their First Amendment rights, even to lie about election fraud, but they do not have the right to use lies and threats to steal an election, as both are now alleged to have done or to at least to have tried to do. You have free speech rights. You do not have free speech rights, however, to walk into a bank and say, give me all your money or I will shoot you.
1: (laughs) True. One might... uh, An important distinction. Yeah,
0: you would think. Now, one might think that, you know, trying to toss out legitimate electoral votes that are known to be legitimate in hopes of stealing an election, you would think that that is the actual Rubicon crossing here. Uh, which longtime far-right attorney John Eastman certainly knows. But, no, he's turning this into a First Amendment issue. Good luck with that. Now, the other guy who surrendered on Tuesday in Fulton County, described by Reuters as a Republican poll watcher, was actually the first to turn himself in, I believe, on Tuesday. And while most folks in this country have no idea who he is, longtime listeners of the broadcast absolutely know who this guy is. His name is Scott Hall. And you've heard his voice on this program many, many times over the past year as he was recorded essentially confessing to the notorious, now notorious MAGA Coffee County Voting Software Voting System Software Breach that was organized by his now co defendant Sidney Powell. He's the guy from this phone call to frequent broadcast guest Marilyn Marks, first heard on the broadcast and ultimately uh, resulting in exposing the unlawful theft of Georgia's proprietary statewide voting system.
1: You know, I'm the
0: guy that chartered the jet to go down to Coffee County to have them
2: inspect all of those computers. And they scanned all the equipment, imaged all the hard drives. They imaged the hard drives? Yes. How in the world did you get permission to do that? We basically had the entire elections committee there. Okay. And they said, we give you permission. Go for it.
1: OK, then wait, wait, that they that Reuters or somebody described him as a poll watcher he is a poll
0: watcher, which uh, I, I think he might have been a Republican poll watcher in, considerably uh, more poll
1: in more than poll watching,
0: more than poll watching. Yes. Uh, although Reuters doesn't explain what it is, why it was that Scott Hall turned himself in uh to the jail in Fulton County on Tuesday but uh so yeah he was a Republican poll watcher but he was also a key player in the Coffee County voting software breach which Reuters failed to mention uh he was booked by the county sheriff's office on Tuesday and has not yet been released they report uh, or at least the jail records show, at least as of airtime, according to Reuters. And I had read this morning, I don't know if Reuters is up to date on this or not, I read this morning that Scott Hall was the first one to turn himself in. If he's still there now, he's been there for hours. Gosh, I hope Donald Trump gets similar treatment on, Friday, or on Thursday. <laughs> anyway, Scott Hall had previously agreed to a $10,000 bond deal, Requiring that he report to pre-trial supervision every 30 days. Now Hall shouldn't have any trouble raising that bond money because, as it turns out, though I frequently refer to him as an Atlanta businessman, he's actually an Atlanta bail bondsman. So how's that for rich irony? <laughs> I guess he can uh, get a, uh, a, a a bail uh, a bail bond for himself. Anyway, sorry about your troubles, Scott. Terrible but uh, glad we were able to help. There are another 17 in uh, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis' RICO case that still need to turn themselves in, that still need to, yes, surrender before Friday at noon. On Monday, Donald Trump agreed to post a $200,000 bond and perhaps more notably accepted bail conditions that would bar him from threatening co-defendants or witnesses in the 41-count federal, uh, I'm sorry, felony case. It's a state case in this case, a 41-count felony case, 13 of which are applied to Trump himself. As to those bail conditions from the court records On Monday in state of Georgia v. Donald John Trump, the consent bond order for defendant Donald John Trump... Uh, lists conditions for his release after booking on Thursday, which he claims he will surrender on that date. Uh, Among those conditions, the defendant shall not violate the laws of this state, the laws of any other state, the laws of the United States of America, or any other local laws. The defendant shall perform no act to intimidate any person known to him or her to be a co defendant or witness in this case to or to otherwise obstruct the administration of justice. This shall include but is not limited to the following A. The defendant shall make no direct or indirect threat of any nature against any co defendant. B. The defendant shall make no direct or indirect threat of any nature against any witness. C. The defendant shall make no direct or indirect threat of any nature against any victim. D, the defendant shall make no direct or indirect threat of any nature against the community or to any property in the community. And E, the above shall include but are not limited to posts on social media or reposts of posts made by another individual on social media. The defendant shall not communicate in any way, directly or indirectly, about the facts of this case with any person known to him to be a co-defendant in this case, except through his or her counsel. And, of course, if he does not follow those restrictions that he agreed to in order to be released after booking on Thursday, well, then he can be sent to jail to await his trial. Think he be able to follow those conditions that he agreed to
1: you know i was thinking about that and i think that actually he will be able to do that because in the past i have seen him where he has been able to restrain himself and not talk about things that he knows are going to get him in big trouble and so i think that that might be the case here that he's a bunch of bluster and everything but when it really comes down to his sense of self-preservation that will actually kick in
0: only if he thinks that Fonny Willis is serious, and right. you know may uh, challenge what he says. And I think that he thinks Fonny Willis is serious. If he doesn't, well, he he should. For example, Mark Meadows, that's Trump's former chief of staff. He sought last week to move the case to federal court and dismiss it on the grounds that he's immune from prosecution right. because of actions that he took as a federal uh, as a federal official as Trump's chief of staff. Meadows asked to delay his surrender until after a hearing in federal court this coming Monday. But he was rebuffed by Fannie Willis, who told his lawyers she will seek his arrest if he does not turn himself in by Friday afternoon.
1: And I believe she means it.
0: I, I, I think so, too. So uh, with that in mind, I think she would have no compunction about asking for uh, Pre-trial detention for Donald Trump if he violates the conditions uh, in the bond order that his attorneys agreed to on his behalf this week. So we will see. Um, and Trump, if you're losing track, uh, he also faces indictments in three other separate criminal felony cases. In addition to the RICO case in Georgia, he also has been charged in D.C. over his failed efforts to steal the 2020 election Um Uh, uh, in uh, Jack Smith's indictment, in another Jack Smith indictment in federal court in Florida. He's charged over his theft and mishandling of classified documents upon leaving office in violation of the Espionage Act. And in New York state, he's charged over a hush money scheme to a porn star to help him win the 2016 election. Just to help you keep track. (laughs) All right, let's take a quick break. And uh, yes, it's back to Wisconsin for a story that feels like we have sort of been covering it for about 15 years straight. Because in many ways, I think we have. The latest in the long-running battle over Wisconsin's Supreme Court and its authoritarian, wildly gerrymandered Republican state legislature. And... Also, coming up, our latest Green News report, as hurricane season now, boy, officially seems to be kicking into high gear. All of that and more still ahead on today's Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. The Bradcast survives thanks to you and your support. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us continue to do, over your public airwaves, what we try to do five days a week. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thank you. Right,
2: right, you're bloody well right, you got a bloody right to say. Right, you're bloody well right, you know you got a right to say.
0: Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So last week we covered a story on the show that is not yet getting national coverage, but like so many of the stories that we tend to cover on this program, it's one that is very likely to get that national coverage in the coming days and weeks, at least if it moves forward on the trajectory suggested, or I should say threatened, by a top Wisconsin lawmaker late last week. You may recall that I covered a story written on this uh, on this show uh, by uh, Brad Blog legal contributor Ernie Canning late last week. It's a rather encouraging story out of the Badger State. After 15 long years in the minority on the state Supreme Court, as of August 1, Liberals had finally taken a four to three majority on the court following the landslide statewide election of Milwaukee Judge Janet Protasiewicz back in April of this year as the state's newest Supreme Court justice. She was sworn in on August one, giving liberals a majority of seats on the court for the first time in more than a decade during which Republicans uh, at first, under the reign of far-right Governor Scott Walker, had gerrymandered the state legislature to entrench their own control and adopt a a panoply of hard-right policies, such as stripping public unions of collective bargaining rights and so much more, including uh, taking away many powers of the governor's office, Once Democratic Governor Tony Evers was elected by the people, denying Walker of a third term as governor. The state's Supreme Court had uh, largely been a rubber stamp for Walker's policies over all of those years and and uh, those of the gerrymandered state legislature for years. So the August one takeover by a liberal majority on the high court in Wisconsin was a very big deal. And so it was on August 2nd when the first of two petitions were filed directly with the state Supreme Court seeking to declare the Republicans extreme gerrymanders in the state assembly and state Senate to be unlawful under several provisions of the Wisconsin Constitution. One of those petitions not only seeks to have the high court mandate new fair maps for both chambers of the state legislature before the 2024 elections next year, but it even asks the court to issue an emergency order requiring new elections for all members of the state Senate under these newly drawn maps, forcing even those whose seats don't otherwise open back up until 2027 to run again next year in 2024 on the basis that all state senators... In Wisconsin, quote, lack legal entitlement, unquote, to their offices, given the unconstitutional maps under which they were elected and seated. As Canning reported last week at Bradblog, quoting from one of the voters, uh, voter petitions, uh, just to give you an idea of the way. The, the extreme partisan gerrymandering has kept Republicans in control of the state legislature, even while the state, which voted for Joe Biden in 2020, actually leans to the left uh, as, as one of the. Petitions uh, petitions points out back in 2010, Wisconsin Democrats had trifecta control over the Badger State government, a Democratic governor, an 18-15 majority in the state Senate, 52-46 majority in the Assembly. Then... After gaining a narrow control of the legislature that year, following the 2010 census, quote, Republicans produced a 2011 plan, a map that shifted 2.3 million Wisconsin residents, more than 40 percent of the state's population into new assembly districts to entrench a Republican majority in the legislature over at least the next decade since 2012. Even when Democrats have won as much as 53 percent of the vote statewide, they have held no more than 39 of the 99 assembly seats in the same period when Republicans have won as little as 44.8 percent of the statewide vote. They have nonetheless held no fewer than 66 of the 99 seats and saw victories that yielded them 22 of 33 Senate seats. See what they did here with a uh, friendlier now or at least fairer high court ordering fair legislative district maps for both the Assembly and Senate. And with all of those seats then up for grabs next year, if the Supremes allow the emergency writ to hold new elections for every seat in the state Senate, along with every seat in the uh, in the state assembly under a sitting Democratic governor in 2024. Well, liberals in the state are excited about what could happen in these two new cases that are now pending before the state supremes. And as you might have guessed, Republicans are furious and or terrified about all of it. As you also may imagine, given the rough-and-tumble, no-holds-barred, hardball, authoritarian-styled Republican politics in the Badger State in the years since then-Governor Scott Walker's rise and the extreme gerrymandering that took place under him, state Republicans do not appear to be taking any of this sitting down. As Ernie Canning reports in a follow-up at the Brad blog this week, quote, If acted upon, a recent threat by Wisconsin's Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss to impeach newly seated state Supreme Court Justice Janet Protosawitz could give rise to a Badger State constitutional crisis. The political gamesmanship that could play out in the weeks ahead, thanks to sore loser Republicans in the state's gerrymandered legislature, may rival or even surpass some of the worst partisan excesses of the fading Scott Walker era, writes uh, Ernie Canning of Voss, who Robin Voss, who owes his position as speaker to those partisan gerrymandered maps, claims that Justice Protisiewicz prejudged the outcome. Of the two new cases brought by voter petitioners during her campaign for the uh, seat on the high court earlier this year, he threatened to impeach her if she dared take part in the pending challenges, insisting she must recuse herself. But, notes Canning, that prejudgment accusation would be far more apt when applied to right-wing Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Rebecca Bradley when last year Bradley joined with the right-wing majority in Johnson v. Wisconsin Election Commission to deny a challenge to the state's newly gerrymandered maps drawn after the 2020 census. Moreover, uh, Ernie describes what he calls an intemperate dissent by Bradley in the recent decision by the new liberal majority, and one of of the sitting conservatives on the court to actually hear these two new petitions in short order at the high court in time, hopefully, for next year's elections, with Wisconsin currently set to hold their primary elections in (sighs) mid-April. Joining us now to break down what could be a... uh, Extraordinary political battle and, in fact, a constitutional crisis, unlike anything we've really seen in Wisconsin since the Scott Walker union stripping and recall elections debacles, is Ernest A. Canning, retired attorney and Bradblog.com's long-toiling analyst and contributor. Welcome back to the broadcast, Ernesto. Thanks, Brad. Glad to be here. Uh, boy, thanks for uh, focusing in on this story. I, this this is, or at least could be, depending, I guess, on uh, which way things fall out here in coming days. This could be a huge story. Yet another one out of the great state of Wisconsin with national implications. Though I don't think many people actually know about it yet. Let's uh, let's step through. Ernie, uh, what is being charged here by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss as he suggests he's going to call for impeachment proceedings against Uh She was literally seated weeks ago, uh, along with the uh, g- g- counter arguments that you present and and where all of this could go in the in the coming weeks. So first, Voss is threatening to impeach Protosawitz. If she does not recuse from these two cases based on a claim that she, quote, prejudged them while running for her uh, prejudge the cases while running for her her seat earlier this spring uh, when she described the current maps as rigged. Explain that prejudgment allegation by Robin Voss, the uh, the far right assembly st- uh, assembly speaker and and any validity that uh, his charges may have here. Well,
2: first off, the the charge was made initially by Voss and repeated by uh, Justice Rebecca Bradley in Mm -hmm. her intemperate dissent. Mm. Um, And what they're arguing is that during the course of the campaign, um, she described what you just described, the facts of this case, she described the maps as having been rigged and unfair. But she also made it clear Throughout her campaign that she had arrived at no conclusions as to how she would rule if she had if if the case came before her on the question of whether they were constitutional. And that actually distinguishes her from uh, the three other liberal members of the Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. which last year in Johnson had dissented and in their dissents, they made it clear that they thought that these maps were unconstitutional. So the one who hasn't gone that far mm. is the one they're threatening to impeach. Well, let me and, ask you.
0: Let me ask you this, uh, Ernie. She says that the maps are rigged. Isn't that in and of itself making a judgment on these cases? Not at all, because you, I, you know this whole thing and the kabuki dance that you've seen
2: so often, when the Federalist Society jurists become come before the. U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee mm-hmm. of trying to pretend that, you know, given facts are not facts is nonsense. I, I mean, the bottom line is there is no no way, no factual basis for disputing that the maps were rigged. You know, in addition to what you described, we list a, a you know, Assembly District 47 mm-hmm. in a color-coded map. What, what the Republican map makers had done was taken little strips of the section that are not contiguous, the sections of uh, Madison, Wisconsin, which is a college town and Mm -hmm. heavily Democratic, and and jam them into this heavily Republican rural district so that they can minimize how many uh, seats they -hmm. get. And for the Republicans to hold on to a two-thirds majority in the uh, Senate, even when they received as little, less than 45% of the vote, tells you, what they've done. This is a, a deeply anti democratic project, and there, it's, a, it's just an indisputable fact. So that's not judging it because there are no disputes in the fact in this case. Judging it would be if she said that she had reached the conclusion they were unconstitutional, and she's expressed no opinion on that.
0: And uh, unlike, of course, uh, the as you point out, the three liberal justices who were already there when they decided, when they dissented in a similar case last year, and presumably Rebecca Bradley, uh, who said that the uh, maps drawn in 2021 were, or in, uh, yeah, I- after the 2020 census, were were perfectly fine and were perfectly constitutional. So, in fact, it does sound like she has prejudged it. And as you point out, the uh, the plaintiffs here, the petitioners are arguing that, the uh, state supreme, I'm sorry, the uh, state constitution requires con- uh, districts to be contiguous. They can't have little pieces over here, little pieces over there, all broken apart into various pieces. Uh, that would make it, uh, they argue, unconstitutional. We will see what saywitz ends up deciding. In fact, we don't know. In the meantime, though, uh, speaking of Bradley, uh, Justice Rebecca Bradley, appointed by Scott Walker back in 2015, she offered what you described as an intentional, Temperate dissent in her objection to even hearing these new uh, two new cases at all. Uh, what was intemperate about her dissent, Ernie Canning? Well, first off, this
2: this decision to, to uh, order a briefing. Uh, was, you know, her, her own conservative co- colleague, Brian Hagadon, you regarded as pretty pro forma and the only way that the court can get a full picture of how they should proceed. Now, that was that was her conservative colleague that said that. She went on to accuse and name each one in her dissent as saying that this is all a farce, that they've already made up their mind and, they're not, you know, they're not going to hear anything the other parties have to say. And she said this, she said, despite re- receiving $10 million from the, democrat party of wisconsin and declaring them max rig pro to see which has not recused herself from the case and she cites a a u.s supreme court case in west virginia a supreme court justice mm-hmm. didn't recuse himself uh, where he received money from the difference between the two is that first off that the u.s supreme court case the the justice in the in west virginia had received uh, three million dollars from a coal company the CEO of a, a, a coal company uh, <clears throat> defendant, party defendant in the case. Mm-hmm. And Bradley looks at these cases not from what would be right for the nonpartisan views of the citizen, their desire for free and fair elections. She looks at it strictly from the standpoint of who, which parties, political party is going to benefit. Mm. And when she claims that protesi uh, which made uh, promises to the Democratic Party of Wisconsin – she fails to identify any promises, and I couldn't find any in researching it. Mm-hmm. The second thing that she does is, you know, when she says that uh, that Protasiewicz uh, is fulfilling a promise, that's not that's not the issue here. What's interesting is that the Democratic Party of Wisconsin is not a party to this lawsuit, and Protasiewicz said during her campaign that if she had a case where the the Democratic Party of Wisconsin appeared before as a party she would recuse herself mm-hmm. but that's not here the, we don't know what party if any the petitioners are connected to these are our petitioners that often like for example where you've had uh, uh, Marilyn and
0: Marilyn uh, Marks uh, yeah, of yeah, uh...
2: Marilyn Marsh who's who's you know he's pushing uh, for uh, more transparent elections in Georgia And her group is a nonpartisan group, Mm -hmm. and she happens to personally be a Republican. There could very well be Republicans among these petitioners. And the interesting thing is that that I don't think people like Bradley ever stop to consider the fact that there's there's a nonpartisan interest in free and fair elections. She only looks at them from the standpoint of how the Republican Party is going to turn out. And when she claims that that uh, Pro2C, which uh, there, there were uh, donations to her campaign from the, from the Democratic Party of Wisconsin, she ignores the fact that when she ran for election in 2016,
1: mm-hmm. after
2: being appointed originally in, in 2015, right. not only did she get direct contributions from the Republican Party, but she got uh, this uh, uh, phony front group by yeah. I, I believe it, uh, Astroturf group, yeah, yeah. They had spent $2.3 million in attack ads to, to benefit her. And so if if anything, when she went to, to try and benefit the Republican Party last year mm-hmm. in the newly drawn map, if she, somebody should have
0: recused, it was her, not she, the other way around. Bradley should have recused, or at least even in this case, if she's arguing that Protossiewicz should uh, recuse uh, because it somehow benefits the Democratic Party which supported her in the election, even though the Democratic Party in Wisconsin is not a party to this legis- to this uh, to this petition to this lawsuit well. If uh, Protasewicz should recuse, then so should Rebecca Bradley, because the Republican Party definitely gave her money uh, when she ran for her election. So it's it's incredible uh, hypocrisy here. But all of this, Ernie, you report, could now result if they move forward, if Voss moves forward, could result in a state constitutional crisis if in fact the uh, gerrymandered GOP legislature actually moves forward with this threat from the assembly speaker to impeach Protasevitz, it's it's obviously obnoxious, authoritarian, if not surprising politics uh, with the uh, with the legislature simply co-opting the will of the voters. I guess I'm old enough to remember when. You know, that was the Republican argument against impeaching Donald Trump twice. You know, oh, he's elected, and now, but they're going to do it just weeks after she's been uh, seated if they carry through with this threat. But how does that become a constitutional crisis in Wisconsin if they actually impeach her? I understand they have a majority in the assembly, so they could in, uh, vote to impeach, and that they have a two thirds Senate majority which is what would be needed to remove her from office after a Senate trial. Uh, that's in the constitution though, right? How does that become const- uh, a constitutional crisis?
2: Well, here's the thing. If you if you take into account what the petitioners are alleging, which is that those state senators in particular, and one would hope that maybe there'd be a rusty powers amongst them that would, would actually put principle and democracy before uh, uh, his own power mm. – um, if they're willing to impeach simply to hold on to power, that in itself is is an assault, a direct assault on democracy. Particularly when you consider the argument that they don't really have a legal basis for the seats they're holding right now. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, you know, getting back to Bradley and what the what the court did last year, you know, back in 2010 when when or 2011 when the when the issue came about where they drew the new maps mm-hmm. under Walker. You had you know, uh, control across, you know, of all three branches of the legislature. In 2021, when they adopted an even more radically engineered map, it was vetoed by Governor uh, Evers, Evers who, yeah. and they didn't have the two-thirds majority needed in both houses to overturn it. So what happened was in violation, or at least according to the, the dissenters, in violation of the separation of powers doctrine – the court itself, the four right-wing jurists, which include mm-hmm. uh, Bradley, had had ste- overstepped uh, their power and basically overridden the uh, the veto from, uh, uh, from governor, the governor Evers and saddled them with the new map, which means that Wisconsin would be denied democracy at least through 2026. Uh, even if the governor appointed uh, a replacement for uh, Protasevich,
0: so uh, and and he has that right to. So if they do impeach Protasevich, they uh, Evers would be able to appoint someone else. Um, but. Uh, you know, it, it all comes down to the timing. As uh, noted, their um, primary elections are in February in Wisconsin next year. Can they even draw new maps in time? And ha- if if the court goes along with the uh, petitioners here, can they then, you know, candidates <clears throat> will have to uh, to sign up to run in all new districts. Uh, in the meantime, they can put a block on all of this by quickly removing saywitz. Uh, And I'm not sure how fast Evers would be even able to appoint a replacement. So you could have a constitutional crisis, I guess, because you've got people who don't belong in those seats, arguably, removing a justice in order to keep the court from, uh, you know, uh, having new elections to elect people who do belong in those seats. And yet she's been impeached by the people who Arguably don't belong there. It's, it's an amazing story. It's uh, frankly, at this point, not necessarily a surprising story coming out of Wisconsin, which has turned into just this hardball, as I've called it, laboratory of autocracy over the past 15 years or so. Uh, Ernie, I spoke to the uh, nation's national affairs correspondent, John Nichols, our friend, a uh, longtime Wisconsin native. He's the associate editor of the uh, Capital Times in Madison, Wisconsin. When wanted to get his comment on your story. He says that uh, we've got this story generally right, but he argues that he believes, quote, uh, Voss will not go ahead with the threat because the Senate is not on board. And he notes because the political winds are blowing hard against him this summer. What's really happening here is an intimidation tactic, uh, Nichols tells me, an attempt to get the liberal justices to blink and act more cautiously. He says that might have worked in usual circumstances, but things have blown up so wildly behind the scenes in the court itself that the lines are more firmly drawn than ever. Uh, he has another thought, but I'll, I'll, I'll get your thought on, on his thought. Uh, does that give you any comfort, uh, Ernie Canning, that uh, maybe Wisconsin and the uh, newly liberal Supreme Court will weather this threat? Well,
2: there's certainly, um, you know, nobody knows uh, Wisconsin better than John Nichols. Mm-hmm. He's, he lives there. He's been writing about it for years. But uh, I don't think that Protossi, which is going to blink on this. I think that she has uh, – keep in mind, you know, she won by 11 percentage points, which is the New York Times pointed out, uh, it was a huge margin in what is ordinarily a, a narrowly divided state. Yeah. I, and the thing is that if you look at on the pot plus side, if in fact she doesn't back down and if in fact, at least in the, in the Senate, you've got a, at least enough, all you need is one Republican Senator say no right. and they can't remove her. The other thing that happens from this, it's so many other issues that that come down the pike. You remember you and I covered years ago, uh, things like, uh, like the uh, vote, you know, photo ID laws that were used mm-hmm. that. that that disenfranchised even a World War II veteran, yep. and uh, so all those things that they've made it more difficult to vote, in addition to um, the extreme partisan gerrymandering, are all things that could be corrected if, in fact, uh, there are fair maps and you get a a, a fair uh, a shot from from all parties. And it shouldn't, you know, the interesting thing is there's a nonpartisan way of looking at these things, which is is that the voters should have a right. To hold uh, whoever they elect accountable through democracy, and they should that the politicians themselves should not be able to install themselves so that they can't be removed. Um, You look at, for example, looking at how different the Republicans look at it, or the ideological Republicans. If you if you take something like uh, DC uh, statehood, if you're looking at it from a non-partisan perspective. You're talking about people's right to, to vote in a country they live in to, in order to have representatives in Congress. Then you, you look at the flip side of it. The Republicans are saying, well, yeah, but if you add uh, them as a 51st state, you're going to have two more Democratic exactly. senators. Exactly.
0: So- Uh, Uh, And and think about it differently. Yeah, they certainly do. Uh, And uh, uh, nowhere more so than in Wisconsin. I'll just close with uh, one more thought here from uh, John Nichols in response to all of this. He notes, I think we're in for a wild ride but one where the liberals have and maintain the upper hand. Governor Evers, he says, has been very steady on all this, and there is now little doubt that if an impeachment went ahead and led to an actual removal, Governor Evers would immediately appoint an even more liberal jurist. So lots of fun in the days ahead in, uh, in Wisconsin. I'll point you to Ernie's story, uh, headlined at brandblog.com, Judicial Impeachment Threat by Wisconsin Republicans Sets Table for Potential Constitutional Crisis. Great work, as always. You can find Ernie, uh, of course, at brandblog.com and on the site formerly known as Twitter at Can4, the number 4-I-N-G, Can4-ing. Thanks, Ernie. Thank you, Brad. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with Desi Doyne and the Green News Report. Yes. A busy Green News Report uh, with yeah. some follow-ups already since we laid it down. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. All right, we've already got uh, breaking news uh, in the uh, green news world here. <laughs> since yes. we laid down our latest GNR, so let's so we'll we'll follow up after our latest green news report. You know, we've never had the combination of record warm
2: oceans plus very strong developing El Nino event in recorded history.
1: Hurricane Hillary makes history as new storms brew in the record hot Atlantic. Panama Canal crippled by severe drought, plus Ecuador votes to protect the Amazon rainforest and keep oil in the ground. Keep it in the
0: ground. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman.
1: And I'm Desi Doyan.
0: Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. And it was only a few days ago before we all walked into One of the most significant weather events of our lives. Something that makes meteorologists, many meteorologists can pinpoint an event that was just so off the charts that drew them into this field. And this was Tropical Storm Hillary. Okay, now we're getting a little pornographic. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, are you as excited about Hurricane Hillary as that guy was?
1: (laughs) Well, Hurricane Hillary was a truly historic storm. Yes, it was. As we go to air, Southern California is drying out and cleaning up from historic Hurricane Hillary, which spun up fast in the unusually warm Pacific Ocean, rapidly intensified to a powerful Category 4 storm in just 24 hours, making landfall on Mexico's Baja California Peninsula over the weekend before becoming the first tropical storm to hit california since 1939 and
0: exciting ariel cohen of the national weather service apparently
1: (laughs) yep Tons of rainfall records broken, especially in mountain and desert areas like Palm Springs Valley, which was hit by nearly a year's worth of rain in a day, overwhelming its stormwater infrastructure. Hillary triggered unprecedented flash floods and mudslides that severely damaged transportation infrastructure across Southern California. But there were no reports of deaths or major injuries in the U.S.
0: Thus allowing me to have a big laugh at it all, I guess.
1: AccuWeather released a preliminary estimate of the total economic losses and damages from Tropical Storm Hillary in the western U.S., putting it at 7 to $9 billion.
0: Okay, less funny.
1: Climate scientists say man-made climate change turbocharged Hillary's rapid intensification, its historic track into California and its torrential rainfall impact.
0: Okay, definitely less funny.
1: And it's not just Hillary. The sleepy Atlantic hurricane season has suddenly lurched into life with a string of new tropical storm suddenly brewing all at once, which experts say is especially unusual during a developing El Nino in the Pacific Ocean. Climate scientists say record hot water temperatures in the Atlantic are providing fuel to sustain storms as hurricane season reaches its peak in September. Severe drought is backing up the Panama Canal. The drought has caused a drop in water levels in the shipping channel, which is filled by two freshwater lakes. Canal operators have reduced loads and crossings this summer, with more than 200 ships on both sides of the canal waiting to pass through. Maritime transportation experts warn such events could become the new normal, with rainfall deficits affecting the ocean shipping industry. That moves nearly 80% of global trade.
0: That as As well is going to end up costing billions and billions of dollars, it would
1: seem. In Canada's historic 2023 wildfire season, firefighters are still battling massive fires that forced the mass evacuation of Yellowknife, the capital of the Northwest Territories, in Canada's worst fire season on record. British Columbia has declared a state of emergency due to the fires. Officials now warn that Canada's fires could last not just through the fall, but into winter. Mm. UCLA climate scientist Dr. Daniel Swain on the broadcast said that while scientists accurately predicted the rate of man-made global warming that we're seeing today, they underestimated its impacts on ecosystems and human systems, which are more intense and arriving earlier than expected. And that means society hasn't yet come to terms about what it all actually means for the world we live in.
2: Given that uh, we're continuing to warm on this uh, this linear, this roughly linear track, but even if it stays relatively linear, the impacts won't be. And we're starting to see things, you know, the limits of our adaptability already, and it's only going to get harder with
0: additional warming.
1: But there is some good news. India has approved a $7 billion plan to build and deploy 10,000 new all-electric buses in nearly 200 cities to cut local air pollution and emissions, and officials say they're cheaper to operate. And finally, in Ecuador, in a historic national referendum, Ecuadorians voted over to ban oil drilling in Yasuni National Park in the Amazon Rainforest, one of the most diverse biospheres in the world. It's hailed as a historic example of climate democracy, and it was also a victory for indigenous peoples and conservationists.
0: I will share that hailing. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and site formerly known known. known as Twitter, at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman.
1: And I'm Desi Doyman. And
0: this has been your Green News Report. Oh yeah, yeah. nothing but hot fun this summer, I guess. Well, Don- definitely hot. Yeah. Say that. that part. Uh, Des, you got a couple. No sooner did we finish the GNR than a couple of updates to a couple of the stories we were covering. Yes. Very quickly. I think we got time for two of them at this point.
1: Yes, I believe we do. So in Greece, some very sad news. Um, there are new deaths confirmed in the raging wildfires. There are 18 people who are believed by fire officials to be migrants or refugees. They were found dead in a forest after a fast-moving wildfire swept through after four days of this wildfire burning. And it's near the Turkish border that serves as a major crossing point for refugees and migrants.
0: Boy, the uh, non-existent climate change around the globe is certainly taking a lot of very- very existent lives It
1: Indeed it know. is And also um, the Atlantic Ocean You know we had talked about How it is uh, suddenly woken up For the Atlantic All hurricane season All of a sudden season. a lot of
0: storms Four or five of them lined up in a row
1: Exactly so that set a new record The Actually not just four It was five storms that spun up suddenly That set a new record For the Atlantic hurricane season They spun up in just 39 hours mm. And that is the fastest time For that many storms to spin up you know, on record So the old record was back in nineteen eighty. It was 48 hours. So this beat the record by about nine hours. That's how fast they spun up.
0: This is the rapid intensification of these storms that you have talked about, warned about for so many years due to the right. warming of the oceans.
1: The record hot Atlantic yep. Ocean. And that has already had one of those has already had landfall. Tropical Storm Herald spun up in literally no time, it seemed, and made landfall on Tuesday in South Texas, bringing lots of flooding rainfall and strong winds as expected. But nobody had time to prepare because it came up. Out of
0: nowhere. Out of nowhere, out of the Gulf. We saw it. It looked like the makings of a storm were there in the Gulf for a few days. And then suddenly it decided to be a storm. Move into Texas. Right. Stay safe down there in Texas. We'll keep our eyes on the other, what did it, what it, uh, he call them, the Conga line of storms? Yes.
1: Dr. Daniel Swain, the yep. climate scientist from UCLA that we spoke with on a previous episode. So, yes, he said that there's a chance that one of those might slip through. So, everybody keep an eye out.
0: All right, uh, we have to get out. But just a quick reminder, the, uh, the first GOP presidential <laughs> debate of the season will be on Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern time. It's a two-hour debate moderated by uh, Fox News' Brett Baer and Martha McCallum. It is airing exclusively on Fox. In case you're wondering where to watch it, we will, of course, be covering it here on the broadcast the following day, I suspect. Uh, there will be eight Republican candidates on the stage who have qualified actually nine have qualified Donald Trump being the ninth the front runner in the contest who has chosen not to show up because he's a coward. (laughs) So uh, anyway, just wanted to make sure you knew that was coming. It is uh, taking place in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Speaking of Wisconsin and Republicans' concerns about that critical battleground state. All right, got to get out. My thanks to our guest today, Ernie Canning, our legal correspondent over at Bradblog.com. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyan, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at Bradblog.com. Thanks to those of you stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebook's mastodons and site formerly known as Twitter, you will find me at the Brad Blog. We'll see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
3: I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1980. That was the day that Joyce Miller became the first woman ever elected to the executive board of the AFL-CIO. In her 2012 obituary, the New York Times described Joyce's commitment to women's rights in the labor movement, writing, "Miss Miller saw union membership, collective bargaining, and labor contracts as the road to equality for working women. And she believed that women should be a part of union management to make sure that attention was paid to issues like equal opportunity, equal pay, parental leave, child care, health insurance, and discrimination in the workplace. Joyce grew up in Chicago where she earned her master's degree in education from the University of Chicago. She first entered the labor movement as a worker at a gumball factory while attending college. After graduation, she became the education director for the Amalgamated Clothing Workers Union in Pittsburgh. She remained dedicated to union education for rank and file members. Joyce was a founding member of the Coalition of Labor Union Women, or CLUE. She served as CLUE's East Coast vice president, eventually being elected CLUE's president in 1977. A position she would hold for 15 years. Under her leadership, CLUE worked as a powerful voice for women's reproductive rights, improving child care, and increasing the number of women in union leadership positions. In 1993, President Bill Clinton named Joyce Miller the executive director of the Glass Ceiling Commission. The purpose of the commission was to gather testimony about women's experience in the workplace and to draft a report of their findings. Of her career, Joyce said, I came to the labor movement with stars in my eyes. I saw it as a vehicle for social change, and I never changed my mind. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com.